Compassion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxas. Great to have you at Crosswinds. If you're a visitor with us this summer, I'm especially thankful that you're able to be here. My name is Kurt. I'm one of the pastors. And um, before we jump into our study this morning, I just want to give you a little pulpit preview about what is going to happen for the rest of the summer when it comes to the preaching schedule. Um, Today is going to be the last week in Genesis for a while. We're going to push pause on the Genesis series because the next chapter in Genesis picks up with the Joseph story, and it's going to be a great narrative, and I'm really looking forward to studying it. But we're just going to wait to September to to pick that up. You probably wonder, what are we going to do for these two months of July and August? Here's here's what's going to happen. Beginning next week, we're going to do a short three-week series called Summer in the Psalms. And... uh, Pastor Jordan is going to preach one psalm, I'm going to preach another psalm, and Pastor um, Stephen is going to preach a third psalm. And we're going to make use of some of our technology, so it's going to be one pastor covering both campuses, because you guys always get a vacation, but we don't. So that's why we're going to sort of slow things down a little bit and allow us to slow the pace for July. In August, we're going to take what is a hot month, and we like to talk about hot topics in the hottest month. Last year, we talked about sexuality in the month of August, and we looked at homosexuality and transgender, and those were really well-received sermons. This August, we're going to look at some more hot topics. The series title is called Hashtag Trending, and we're going to look at, number one, um, manliness, because our culture has effeminated men and sort of blurred the distinction between men and women, and what does a true man, a godly man, look like? And how does a godly man lead? And how does a godly man love his family? And how does a godly man lead? And what kind of role should he play in his church home? So we're going to take two weeks to look at that very crucial topic of manliness. And uh, hopefully you guys will be grunting by the time we are done studying that one. After that, we're going to take one week to look at um, the prosperity gospel. And you wonder, what is the prosperity gospel? Some of you are familiar with Joel Olstein and some of those other television preachers, you know, send me money and you'll get rich, that kind of stuff. Believe it or not, there's a lot of people who follow some of that. And so we just want to interact with those things and just teach you a little bit about how to think biblically on those subjects. Lastly, we're going to do a message on politics. And the title of that message, at least tentatively right now, is How Would Jesus Vote? <laughs> because I think that none of us would qu- are quite too sure exactly what to do with our current political scenario, because it's not exactly what we expected. So that'll be a, a great message when we get to the end of August. That'll bring us to September, and we'll jump back into Genesis and return with the Joseph story. So that's the preview of what's coming for the rest of the summer. Last week, um, we looked at the end of Jacob's story. Because as a church, we are preaching our way consecutively through the book of Genesis. And so we finished with Genesis 35 last week. What are we doing this week? Genesis 36. It's the Esau story. Jacob's brother. You know, what happened to Esau? Where did his life go? Let me just tell you right up front that Genesis chapter 36 is probably the most 
unpreached on chapter in the entire book of Genesis. Like, most pastors avoid this like the plague. It's like eating grape nuts without milk. It is a bad way to go. It is a pure genealogy. I mean, it looks like a page right out of the Hebrew phone book. You know, begat this and did that and this strange name. It's one right after the other. And so you say, Kurt, why in the world are you preaching on it then? Why don't we just jump over it and go to something else? Well, I really believe 2 Timothy 3.16. It says, all Scripture is God-breathed and all Scripture is profitable. I will tell you, I think some Scripture is a lot harder to understand and harder to get to pay dirt. This is one of those. But all Scripture is good. And God wants us to study all Scripture, not just the easy Scriptures. And what I have discovered in 20 years of preaching is that sometimes when you take these tough texts that seem like they could never have anything practical to say, when you spend enough time with your spade working in this hard dirt, all of a sudden they'll release a great gem, something that is really practical, something that is really applicable that we can take home to our lives. And I think you're going to find that is true in Genesis chapter 36. Just some real simple practical stuff for us to take with us into the week as we mine this chapter this morning. I'm going to tell you right up front what is the the main idea of the entire chapter. And if you want to write it down, that's fine. This, This is it. Think carefully about the important decisions of your life. Because those choices will have an unstoppable influence on your life, the life of your children, and your descendants. Let me say it again. Think carefully about the important decisions of your life. Because those choices will have an unstoppable influence on your life, the life of your children, and your descendants that follow. So we're going to jump in here in in Genesis 36. I'm going to read the first eight verses, and then we're going to go ahead and study. So let's begin. And by the way, I'm going to get a bunch of these names wrong, because I think everybody gets these names wrong. These are the generations of Esau that is, Edom. Esau took his wives from the Canaanites, Ada, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite, O holy Bama, political satire not intended, the daughter of Anna, the daughter of Zibion, the Hivite, and Basemath, apparently she was good in algebra at school, Ishmael's daughter, the sister of Nebioth, and Ada bore to Esau Eliphaz, Basemath bore Ruel, and Oholibama bore Jaish, Jalam, and Korah. By the way, Korah means bald guy. So this is a nod to all the bald guys here. These are the sons of Esau who were born to him in the land of Canaan. Then Esau took his wives, his sons, his daughters, and all the members of his household, his livestock, all of his beasts, and all of his property that he had acquired in the land of Canaan. He went into a land far, a land far away from his brother Jacob, for their possessions were too great for them to dwell together. The land of their sojournings could not support them because of their livestock. So Esau settled in the hill country of Seir. Now, I think that the reason that Moses wrote Genesis chapter 36 
is for us to be able to look at two key choices that Esau made in his life. And so we can see the trajectory his life took based upon those two key decisions. And as it were, we can learn from Esau's mistakes. We can avoid making some of the same things, mistakes that he did. Here they are. Here's the first one we're going to learn. Esau married women that didn't love God, and they led his family away from the Lord. Earlier in our study of the book of Genesis, we learned that both Esau and Jacob sort of came to middle age, and both of them were single guys, at least for a while. And Jacob was frustrated being a middle-aged single guy, and you know, there's he wants to get married, and there's all kinds of girls around him, but they're only Canaanite girls, girls of the land. And so he didn't get married. Now, Esau was a little different, though. Esau, he had his hormones, and he saw women, and he says, well, that you put those two together, you know. You see girls, and I'm a guy, and I want to get married. So he got married to, we learned, was two Canaanite women of the land. The guy had a double wedding. Here come the brides, plural. It's a real sort of strange. Now, later we learn that the Canaanites, which are the people of the land, were known for their sexual promiscuity and perversity. They were very far from God. They were eventually commanded to be wiped out by God. But Esau, what did he do? Chose to marry two Canaanite women. He valued following his sex drive more than following his God. He didn't want to be single. He didn't want to wait. But here's what you need to think about. Think of the lineage that Esau comes from. He would hear these stories at his dinner table all the time. When Abraham, his grandfather, wanted to find a bride for Isaac, which was his father, what did Abraham do? He gathered his um, servant, Eleazar, and he sent Eleazar a far distance away to Padam Aram so he could find a wife for Isaac that was part of the covenant family. Do not let him marry a woman of the land. Do not let him marry a Canaanite woman. And so Eleazar had gone a long distance, hundreds of miles away, to get Rebecca and to bring Rebecca back to marry Isaac. And so their love story, you know they talked about it all the time at the dinner table. This is what Esau was reared on. But what did he do? He married two women of the land anyway. Totally thumbed his nose at what he knew was right. Now, Earlier we learned this in our study of Genesis. In Genesis 26-35, we learned it says, The Hittite women that Esau married made life bitter for Rebekah. In other words, on the holidays when Esau came over with his two wives and Esau's mom saw the way that these two wives were interacting with her son, and the way they were conducting themselves, it just made her insides turn. When she saw the, the, the kind of things that they said 
and the disrespect they probably showed to Esau, she just cringed. When she saw the values that they had in, the, in their home, she just felt it was wrong. And you can imagine what Grandma Rebecca felt like when it came to the grandkids. And she saw how the grandkids were being raised, and the things that they were being exposed to, and the things that their mom was telling them is valuable. You can imagine, you don't even know what, um, what Grandma Rebecca was seeing the kids watch on TV. And she was just turning inside. Ah, oh, this is terrible. And she would say into her mind, Esau, what were you thinking when you married these girls? And isn't that the whole point? He wasn't thinking. All he was saying was, hey, here are two hot girls that really think I'm a nice guy. I have hormones. Let's get married. He didn't think about the implications for the future of marrying these two Canaanite women. Now, we learned earlier in our study of Genesis that he tries to do sort of a halfway repentance on this. And Esau, it says, when he saw the bitterness of his mom uh, based on his two Canaanite wives, what he decided to do was he decided to marry a third wife. And he married a woman who was a descendant of Ishmael. Now, who is Ishmael? Ishmael was the son that wasn't supposed to happen. Ishmael was the, the, the son that was sent away, sort of like the, like the cast-offs. So this guy, or this uh, new wife of his, is loosely associated with the covenant family, but not tightly associated with the covenant family. Now, how does this apply? Here's how it applies to us. If you are somebody who is single and you are somebody who is searching, I say this to you. Be very, very careful who you date and who you marry. Now, some of you say, well, I'm not going to marry a non-Christian, but I certainly can date them. You marry the people you are dating, so they go together. Do not date somebody who doesn't love Jesus. It won't work. There's no future in it. In addition, do not date somebody who is just loosely affiliated with Christ. You want to date somebody who is burning hot for Christ. You know, it will not go well if you only you date somebody who is. Um, loosely associated with Jesus. Let me show you what the Scripture says in this. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. It says here, do not be unequally yoked together. It doesn't mean much to us, but it meant a lot in that day. 
because you would take two oxen and you would put a yoke on them. And it was very important that the oxen were of equal strength and size because if you had one strong oxen and one weak oxen, what would happen is the strong oxen would pull more than the weak oxen and it would twist the collar on their neck. Now, how do you like it when somebody starts to choke you? Does that feel good? No. Well, that's what would happen when the oxen weren't matched. It would chafe, it would cause cuts and bruising, and would give them a fair degree of pain. Now, what he's saying here is do not yoke yourself. Don't marry somebody who's an unbeliever because what you'll find is it's going to cause pain. It is going to be hard. It's going to make life difficult for you. That's just the way it's going to go. It's going to feel like you're getting choked sometimes. Now, I would add to this, like I said earlier, it's not just a matter of somebody saying, hey, I'm a believer. I went to church once last year. You need to marry somebody who burns hot for Jesus, somebody who loves Christ more than they love you. Because what will happen is if you burn hot for Christ and you choose to marry somebody who's only loosely associated with Christ, you will find yourself feeling the pain of unequal yokeness where you're valuing Christ in your life and you're valuing raising your kids to love Jesus and they just don't value that like you. It's going to be difficult. You see, Esau really made a poor, crucial choice in the women he married. And as we're going to see, what this does is it sets his life and his descendants in a trajectory he never intended it to go. There were really some serious long-term ramifications about marrying outside of the covenant family. The same happens with us. So I speak to you who are single. Marry a Christian who burns hot. The second thing that Esau did was this. Esau wasn't careful where he moved. He led his family away from godly influence. From what we can tell, Esau at least had temporarily been to the land of Seir before he chose to move there permanently. He chose to move outside of the promised land. What happened was is Jacob, his brother, had returned home. Jacob, we know, had a bunch of stuff, a bunch of cattle, a bunch of sheep, a bunch um, bunch of goats, and you have Esau and Jacob have too much stuff together. And so what Esau does, he says, hey, I'll volunteer, no heart problems in the home, I will move away. I'll take all my stuff and I'll move outside of the promised land, the land of Seir. Now what, I'm reading a little bit between the lines, but I do not think it was a necessity for Esau to move outside of the promised land. Think about this. Promised land is a big land. Do you think two brothers have too much stuff that they cannot live in the same promised land together? No. For instance, Esau could have gone north back to the area of Shechem that we had seen that Jacob had just come from recently. We also know there was nobody living there because <laughs> Jacob's sons wiped them all out. You know, but what he did is he chose intentionally to move outside of the promised land. And not only that, but he chose to move himself away from the only influence he had from a godly brother and a godly mother and a godly father. He chose to move away 
from the covenant family and the encouragement he would receive through it. He chose to move into a pagan area. Now remember what Esau was reared on when he grew up. He would hear the stories. Remember this as we studied about Grandpa Abraham. When Grandpa Abraham, during a time of famine in the land of Canaan, had gone down to Egypt, did it go well when he went to Egypt? Absolutely not. It went terrible. And so Grandpa Abraham had learned, you stay exactly where God wanted you, in the promised land. And we also learned when it came time to get a wife for Isaac, one of the things that Grandpa Abraham had said to his servant Eliezer is, under no circumstances is Isaac to leave the promised land. You are to stay here. But what did Esau do? Hey, I got no problem. I'll leave this land. I'll move far away from God's land and my godly family. How does this apply to us? How important to you is it to be part of a church home? <laughs> Thank you. But the point is that we need each other, don't we? Because we go through hard times and we need a church family to pray with us. When our kids are young and they're growing up, isn't it great to be able to take your kids to an Awana? where other people are teaching them about Jesus, not just you? Isn't it so important that when your kids are valuing their friends so much that they have a good Christian youth group to go to where there's other kids that can encourage them in their faith? They're not all alone in an environment that is completely hostile to God? Isn't that so important? You see, we need to place a high value in being part of the covenant family. Esau put almost no value on it, and quickly moved away. What would it be like if you went to work on Monday and your boss pulled you into his office and he said, you know, I've got a great deal for you. I want to give you a promotion. And here's what the promotion is going to involve. You're going to um, get a good financial increase, but you're going to have to move away. We're going to move you to an area of the country that you look at and there's absolutely no churches and no Christians and it's just you and your family all by yourself. Would you take the job because the money is so important? Or would you value being part of the covenant family over that pay raise? You see, you need to place high value on being part of the covenant family. Because Esau chose to marry non-Christian women, and also because Esau chose to separate himself from the covenant community. Those were two determinative choices that set his life in a direction he never intended it to go and had a lasting ramification on his children and descendants for years to come. The rest of this chapter, what it does is it sort of details out his genealogy and what happened to his family pretty much based off of those two choices. Let's go ahead and read the, the rest of the chapter. And by the way, go easy on me when it comes to the names. Now these are the generations of Esau, the father of the Edomites in the hill country of Seir. These are the names of Esau's sons. Eliphaz, the son of Ada, the wife of Esau. Ruel, the son of Basemath, the wife of Esau. The sons of Eliphaz were Teman, Omar, Zepho, Gadam, and Kenaz. 
All you uh, pregnant women, there you go. A bunch of good names. Timnah was the concubine of Eliphaz, Esau's son, and she bore Amalek to Eliphaz. These are the sons of Ada, Esau's wife. These are the sons of Ruel, Nahath, Zerah, Shammah, and Mizah. These are the sons of Basemath, Esau's wife. These are the sons of Oholibamah, the daughter of Anna, the daughter of Zibion, Esau's wife. She bore to Esau, Jaish, Jalam, and Korah. That's the bald guy. These are the chiefs of the sons of Esau. The sons of Eliphaz, the firstborn of Esau. The chiefs, Temen, Omar, Zepho, and Kenaz. Korah, Gadam, and Amalek. These are the chiefs of Eliphaz in the land of Edom. These are the sons of Ada. These are the sons of Ruel, Esau's son. The chiefs, Nahath, Zerah, Shammah, and Mizah. These are the chiefs of Ruel in the land of Edom. These are the sons of Basemath, Esau's wife. And these are the sons of Oholibamah, Esau's wife. The chiefs were Jaish, Jalam, and Korah. These are the chiefs born to Oholibamah, the daughter of Anna, Esau's wife. These are the sons of Esau, that is Edom, and these are their chiefs. Okay, you're going to say right now, what in the world could you ever find in that that is slightly preachable? Good question. Okay, first of all, let me simplify this. Esau had five sons and ten grandsons. How's that? Real simple. But here is where it hits pay dirt. It says a number of people in his family turned out to be chiefs. Chiefs in the Hebrew means rulers over a thousand. So what happens is Esau leaves the promised land, goes into the land of Seir, and his family becomes very powerful, very influential, and his kids essentially go into politics. And they become a ruling family in that land over groups of a thousand people. They're sort of like the Bushes, the Clintons, the Kennedys, the Esau's. That's, that's pretty essentially what you have going on here. A ruling and powerful family. And how does he get sort of a slid into this rulership in this land of Seir? One of the ways you find out is when he married this woman called Oholimama, she was part of one of the ruling families. So he sort of married into power, money, and success because that was his value, not being part of the covenant family. Now what happens, the next part of the genealogy flips. Instead of being looked at from Esau's vantage point, it looks at it from the rulers in the land of Edom's vantage point. Now let me read that section and you'll see where this O Holy Mama lady sort of slides in there where he became part of the ruling families. These are the sons of Seir, the Horite, the inhabitants of the land. Latan, Shobal, Zibion, Anna, Dishan, Ezer, and Dishan. These are the chiefs of the Horites, the sons of Seir in the land of Edom. The sons of Lotan were Hori and Heman, and Lotan's sister was Timnah. These are the sons of Shobal, Alvin, and the chipmunks. Manhath, Ebal, Shepho, and Odeb. These are the sons of Zibion, Ea, and Anna. He is the Anna who found the hot springs in the wilderness where he pastured the donkeys of Zibion's father. And everybody went out and sat in the whirlpool. These are the children of Anna, Dishan, and there it is, and Oholibama, the daughter of Anna. That's where he married in. 
These are the sons of Dishon, Hemdan, Eshban, Ithran, and Cheran. These are the sons of Ezer, Bilhan, Zaban, and Achan. These are the sons of Dishan, Uz, and Aaron. These are the chiefs of the Horites, the chiefs of Lotan, Shobal, Zibion, Anna, Dishan, Ezer, and Dishan. These are the chiefs of the Horites, chief by chief, in the land of Seir. So Esau has moved to the land of Seir. He's married into one of the ruling families. Everything looks like it's going well because his kids are becoming chiefs over groups of a thousand. But here's what's happening. While his influence and success is going up, so is his assimilation into the culture and the ways of the people in the land. He was being swallowed up and losing any covenant distinctiveness he had from his parents. Because while he didn't see any value in marrying a wife inside the covenant community, do you think his children saw any value in marrying in the covenant community? No. And they assimilated into the people of the land. Now, let me read this last part, and then we'll tie this up. These are the kings who reigned in the land of Edom, before any king reigned over the Israelites. Bela, the son of Beor, reigned in Edom, the name of his city being Dinhaba. I'll read quickly. Bela died, and Jobab, the son of Zerah of Basra, reigned in his place. Jobab died, and Husham of the land of the Temanites reigned in his place. Husham died, and Hadad, the son of Bedad, who defeated Midian in the country of Moab, reigned in his place. The name of his city was Avith. Hadad died, and Samla of Masrika reigned in his place. Samla died, and Shobal of Rehoboth on the Euphrates reigned in his place. Shal died, and Balhanan, the son of Akbor, reigned in his place. Balhanan, the son of Akbor, died, and Hadar reigned in his place, the name of his city being Paul. His wife's name was Mehetabeth, the daughter of Matrid, the, the daughter of Mishab. These are the names of the chiefs of Esau, according to their clans and their dwelling places, by their names, the chiefs of Timnah, Alva, Jether, Oholibama, Ella, Pinon, Kenaz, Teman, Mibzar, Magdil, and Imram. These are the chiefs of Edom, that is Esau, the father of Edom, according to their dwelling places in the land of their possession. And Jacob, though, lived in the land of his father's sojournings, in the land of Canaan. The point of this part of chapter 36 is simply this. It's to point out the incredible amount of success that Esau's family enjoyed. If you count them up, he ends up with 11 in his family who are chiefs. 11 who are chief over a thousand. And you also look at the Edomites here. They also have a number of capital cities because you have kings and the kings reign in different capital cities. And if you map these out, it seems like they cover a large area. So here's the picture you have. Esau has left the land of Canaan. Esau has married into a ruling family. Esau's kids are incredibly wealthy, incredibly powerful, incredibly successful, ruling over a large area of land. Every single thing in his life says success. You would look at him and say, you know, Esau... You made all the right choices in your life. 
You married the right woman. She was a hottie, and she was definitely in part of that ruling family. You married into money. Not only that, but your kids, look at them. They're, they're all successful. Where you married and where you moved, you made the right choice. Look at your brother Jacob, still in the land of Canaan. No kings, no wild success over there. In fact, in a few years, they're going to discover they're going to have famine. There's going to be hunger. And some of Jacob's sons are going to go scurrying to Egypt in search of food. Well, Esau is wildly successful. But what looked like success on the surface wasn't success in the eyes of God, was it? Because those two choices had set his life in a completely different direction. Genesis 36 sort of gives it up to that point in history what happened to Esau, but let me just trace out the rest of the story of Esau in the Bible. 500 years later, when Moses uh, led the Israelites out of bondage in Egypt, they returned to the promised land, and they were going on a public transportation place called the King's Highway, and the King's Highway went through the land of Edom, through the land of their own biological brothers. But would the Edomites let them take the public transportation system? Absolutely not. In fact, the Israelites even offered to just simply buy the water they would use as they walked down the highway. No, you may not pass. You have to take the long way around. What a harsh way to treat your the descendants of your biological brother. What all started this? Who we married and where we moved. It continues. Saul, when he becomes one of the, the first king of Israel, he ends up having to uh, battle with the Edomites, who are some of the enemies of uh, the Israelites. Brothers, but enemies. David, he ends up having to fight against the Edomites. What goes from there, what ends up happening is Hadad, who is an Edomite prince, escapes to Egypt and eventually comes back and ends up being a source of trouble for King Solomon. There's all kinds of fighting that go on between the Edomites and the Israelites. But folks, Jacob and Esau reconciled. Remember that? Things should be good between them. But the choice that Esau made on who he married and where he moved set them back up to be enemies once again. Probably one of the uh, most infamous moments of the animosity that existed between the descendants of these two brothers happened when the Babylonians were conquering Jerusalem. I hadn't studied it much, but it talks about this a number of times in Scripture in a number of different books. In fact, what happened was as the Babylonians were conquering Jerusalem, the Edomites sat and watched, they laughed, and they encouraged the destruction of their own biological brothers. And what happened when the, uh, some of the Israelites were trying to flee for their life and they came to the Edomites, they said, you're our brothers, please help us. What did the Edomites do? Turned around, put them right back to the Babylonians and said, go off into captivity and exile. 
In fact, there's an entire book in the Old Testament. It's the book of Obadiah about God's judgment on the Edomites because of how they treated their biological brothers, the Israelites. Let me show you just a few snapshots from the Old Testament on this. Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites, the day of Jerusalem, how they said, ha, 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 lay it bare, lay it bare, down to its foundations, destroy it. The daughter of Bab, O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed. Blessed shall he be who repays you with what you have done to us. Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. That's some bad blood, bad mojo there. In Obadiah, because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you and you shall be cut off forever. On the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were just like one of them. But do not gloat over the day of your brother in the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their ruin. Do not boast in the day of distress. They're brothers. In fact, God decides because of how the Edomites treated the Israelites just to completely wipe them out as a nation, never to let them exist again. Malachi 1 talks about this. I have loved you, said the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will, re we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down. They will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the borders of Israel. The Edomites, who were the biological brothers of the Israelites, became their arch enemies. Now, it doesn't just end in the Old Testament after they were wiped out as a nation. But do you realize it even continued into New Testament times? Many of you know the Christmas story. You know about the birth of Jesus. You know about the story of the wise men who came from the east, who went to King Herod to find out where the king of the Jews was born, that they might worship him. And Herod said, you know, well, I don't know exactly where he's born, but when you find him, come and tell me and so I can worship him too. We know that was all just a ruse because Herod planned to kill Jesus. And when he found out that he was tricked by the Magi, what he did is he killed the baby boys in Bethlehem. Herod was the first one to try and take the Savior of the world off the scene. Do you know Herod was an Edomite? The ancient enemies of the Israelites? who are actually their biological brothers. You see, Esau's lineage, his family, it headed in a direction he never had planned for it to go. He had reconciled with his brother. He never expected that his descendants would become their arch enemies. His descendants would actually, one of his descendants would be the one who tried to take Jesus off the scene. 
But what set it in that direction? Who he married and where he moved. Now, if you're somebody who's young and single, I just want to talk to you from the bottom of my heart. I can't tell you how important it is to only date somebody who loves Jesus. Please listen to this story. If you date somebody who doesn't love Jesus, you can find yourself marrying somebody who doesn't love Jesus. And it'll take your life, your children, and your lineage in a direction you never planned for it to go. And if when you work for Agco or wherever you work, your boss walks in the door and says, I've got a great job opportunity for you. If it takes you to a place where you have no influence from a good church family, do not take the job. Because we need brothers and sisters in Christ to encourage us in our walk in the faith. We need brothers and sisters in Christ to help us as we raise our children and we try to teach our kids to love and serve Jesus. Because who you marry and where you move can greatly determine your future and take it in a direction you never intended to go if you're not careful. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, I thank you for this chapter it's a tough chapter, a lot of strange names, but yet it's a clear chapter. These two decisions in Esau's life change the trajectory. And Jesus, I pray that we would learn from this warning, that we would hold high bars about who we date, and we would always value um, where we live and the church family we have more than money, more than income, and more than opportunity. We ask this in Christ's precious name. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Kurt's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.